Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we're going to be thinking and chatting um, to the amazing Caroline Crow. We talk about everything from communication, managing expectations and the simple act of listening. We also chat to Caroline about what inspired her to run 10 marathons in 10 days, something I cannot even (laughs) begin to comprehend. Uh, In our clinical segment today we round up our chat on feline uh, pancreatitis and we talk today about the treatment of uh, chronic pancreatitis in these cases. I want to start also by just saying a massive thank you to uh, the VDS and VDS training for their support of this podcast. Collaborating with them for these conversations has been uh, a real joy. So, So big thank you to them. Caroline, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're uh, thrilled to have you here. I wonder if you can just start by um, uh, introducing yourself to our audience and uh, maybe just uh, giving us a little bit of your kind of veterinary background, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So um, thank you. And uh, so um, Caroline Crow, so I'm head of training at the Veterinary Defence Society. So um, background, equine background. So um, I qualified from uh, the Royal Veterinary College in 2002, went straight into equine practice. I um, was, I feel actually very privileged to go back to uh, Gloucestershire where I grew up and worked in a very good um, equine practice, which was known as Willersley Equine Clinic at that point. Um, And I went in as an, straight in as an ambulatory vet rather than having to do an intern. Um, So I was really, and why I feel privileged actually because I was with a really, really good team um, and a team that developed me so that I felt actually I could go and do that and be an ambulatory vet. Um, I always had a a passion for stud medicine, quite quickly got involved in in the stud work and then went over to New Zealand in 2004 um, and worked as a, as a, stud vet over there and did a season over there which is just an amazing experience if anybody can travel with your work go and do it you get get paid to go um well learn more about the veterinary veterinary medicine that you're really interested in go and see another country go and work in another environment it was just one of the best experiences I've had so um I did that absolutely loved that um and just rather than seeing oh I don't know 10 to 20 mares in the morning I 50 to 100 mares um, in the morning. The, the volume that you get over there is just, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So I was over there for six months and then came back and went on the sort of stud return and got, um, I was very much focused on obviously stud and ambulatory, but also with um, bias towards um, stallion fertility as well. Brilliant practice with a, a really good clientele where we did quite a lot of um, AI and um, and also um, looked at some of the standing fertility. So that was that was just a really good learning environment. We were growing as a practice quite considerably. Um, when I first started, up, there were four partners and myself. When I uh, finished my clinical work, we had merged our neighbouring practice, and I think we were about a thirty vet practice. So as equine vets, it was it that, that's a that's a decent sized practice. I went on maternity leave in 2007. I had a year off with both my children. So 2008 and 2010, they were born um, and came back part-time both times. Um, And part-time was um, six in the morning till about one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, My mornings, my husband's also an equine vet um, and he was able to do that first bit. I needed to be back for pickup. He had four four days doing that and a full on call. So 
whether that's part time or not, I'm not quite sure. But um... <laughs> I don't. I don't. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think that that discussion about what is. I think I saw something in Vetman recently about that. You know, what is part time? I don't know. Is that for not? I don't think it, it means a lot of different things. I don't think it means something specific. I, so really interesting, I think, um, just to pick up on a couple of things you said. So this idea of going into this equine job, and it all sounds actually pretty positive to begin with, uh, you know, but I think, you know, you, you said going into that first job, um, being an ambulatory equine vet, I mean, that sounds petrifying to me. Like, so are you, you're literally just like one day, you drive away in your car and you're going to be a vet. <laughs> does does that not was that not slightly terrifying also? Um, I don't remember being terrified. Okay, <laughs> Maybe I was naively blind. Okay. It's, and it's really hard because I now now I do what I do. I was trying to think, I always try and think what did they do so well that enabled me to feel that I could cope. And I think they were always there on the end of the phone. I would still feel comfortable phoning them up in the middle of the night to ask them for some help and I know that they if they could they would help me and so I knew they always had my back and I think that is something that enabled me not to feel petrified I also had other things where I had I learned really quickly that actually (laughs) good reason to love equine medicine it's quite basic it's like 20 mils or um five mils um so (laughs) there's, there's only a certain number of uh um maybe that's my medicine but um there's only there's only a certain number of things you need to know and really know um and I had cheat sheets in the back of my car I had some practical tools like that that helped I had I remember taking having my books in the footwell that again maybe with equine what you can do is you can you've got time to think about what's coming because you know that you're going to go to a horse with a skin condition you can phone a friend it must it must have been nerve-wracking but I I always felt I had the back of my bosses to to help me out and I think that that enabled me to flourish and to to grow and develop and make a mistake but not fit I I didn't want to make a mistake but and things didn't always go right but you had to get on with it you just have to get on you have to get on with it you are the, the hardest bit I remember is being in the in the middle of a field and being the expert thinking I've got no idea what this is, but you had to you had to learn very quickly how to have that professional behavior of like um, or know what you do know. So, you know, your fundamentals well. So you just go, this is the plan. This is the next step. I'll, I'll take the blood, which actually buys you time. I never felt I had to prove anything particularly. I also do feel that I did have a benefit because I am horsey. So for an equine person, so I knew the lingo, I could chat to them, I could understand where they were coming from because I'd grown up in that environment. I think that is a challenge for those who aren't, haven't got an equine background at times. And I don't know if that's then a, a challenge for small animal vets, thinking about it, um, whether that has an impact. But for me, it, I was in my comfort zone in, in lots of ways. So one of the other things that you mentioned um, initially um, was traveling you know going to New Zealand and I think that sounds like a really good thing to do um and I always I you know I I'd actually never traveled uh, uh truly as part of my career but I think um I'm always saying to people now listen do it before you've got other things that you can't means you can't do it <laughs> so all those like other life things that kind of get in the way of necessarily doing that was that just kind of a fun jolly I mean it sounds like it was more than that it sounds like actually it was a really important 
learning experience for you to kind of also to do that? Yeah, I'd say it's a pivotal part of my career development. Oh, wow. So okay. I needed to get more experience. I wanted to get into, into stud work more. You have to get your numbers up just because it's it, you've got to get experience, don't you? So I had a, we just bought a house. I, I was living with my now husband. We just bought a house. I remember somebody in New Zealand going, well, is everything okay in your relationship? Because you just have to leave them for five months. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But like, if he doesn't support me now doing this, then really... Have we really got a future? Like, as you said, we haven't got we haven't got kids at the moment. Why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I go and have an experience? Um, I when I saw practice, I I went over to Kentucky, um, and I at one point I was thinking, oh, do I do an internship again abroad? Because you know, why not see the world? It helped me make me me. It helped me. It sort of helped grow me personally and also professionally. I got friends now over there who are lifelong friends. It, it was a, it was very much more of a why not rather than why. And it just so happens it's also a really beautiful part of the world. Like what an incredible country. Yeah. Re- really good prime minister now. No, I, <laughs> I talk about her all the time. I'm oh, she's so amazing. Inspired yeah. by her. Oh, I'm so yeah. inspired by her. Like I, yeah. I know that's not a reason to move somewhere, but yeah. genuinely like I just adore her. Like she is my number one. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> sort of world world leader. So yeah. um no, I just yeah, amazing. So then so that you know, this is all this all sounds great. You know, you've got a you've got a now husband who lets you just swan off and do what you like. <laughs> you've got I love this. I'm just what I mean, if he's not I love that. If he's gonna not gonna let me do this, then probably not the one for me. Brilliant. So this is this is <laughs> I'm making okay. my decisions based on. No, but I think that's so true. I really like that. You know, I think we're we're in this for the long term. So why not? So why are we? Let's not be funny about this. That's obviously very different from what you do. Well, is it very different? It's all related, but it's clearly a very different job from the one you do now. So I think people will be really interested. How do you make the transition from? you know, successful equine career into doing the job that you do now? I got to a point in my, in my doing the, my equine repro work and equine ambulatory that I really enjoyed my work. I, I, I never went, I'm not going to say every day was like a bed of roses, but generally and fundamentally, I really enjoyed my work, but I wanted to do something different. Um, And I wanted to do something more for, the profession. When I was pregnant, um, I was the first vet in our practice um, to get pregnant. They didn't know what to do with me in a way, in, a, in the nicest possible way, like what to do, what not to do. Um, I was one of the first um, uh, people in my like cohort at university to get pregnant. So um, the practice was super supportive, but there was just no guidance. There was no um, like, what do you do? What can you expect? any of that there's genetic stuff out there but for any professional but not nothing to do with the vets and then when other friends were going through it afterwards people I found people asking me lots like well what did you do how did you do it what worked what didn't work and I found myself sort of probably coaching and providing some advice and I thought there's a real gap here like where's who, who's supporting who's supporting the pregnant women but that was my initial initial thought um, I had full intention to, when I was pregnant, to work up to probably about 38 weeks pregnant. Um, and then I got double bowed by a horse on the, over the back of the stocks at about 13, 14 weeks, for my first one. And I remember going to the midwife and going, look at this. And her like, just like, that's it. You have to stop working now. I'm like, well, that's not really very practical, is it? And the baby, she, she was fine. She's fine. But it did make, give me a wake up call of going, hmm, 
maybe I won't work up until 38 weeks clinically. So actually for me, what worked and what worked for the practice, because also what I didn't want is to be a pain for them. I didn't want to sort of, I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to be difficult, didn't want to be a burden. Um, and so I said, right, you know, all the projects, every single winter, we always talk about that we're going to do and we never get to do. What if I came off my clinical work at five months, um, stopped my clinical work, stopped my after hours work, five months. And for the last four months, I just, I'm project person and give me all of them. So I ended up doing health safety. I wrote a paper. I just, I did loads, I did loads of stuff and helped the practice, but also actually helped me because Actually, then I was heavily affected. I'm not saying that that will work for everyone else. I've got other colleagues who later on then worked up until 38 weeks because that worked for them. So everybody is totally different. But I thought, well, there's nothing nothing there for people. And, and actually, I just got more and more. And I've always been into, I love the people part. I love the animal part, but actually I love, always love the people part. And so, so it was in 2012 that I remember going, I went to a, a um, a, a day about coaching with the coaching academy and and I went and I went oh my god why 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 are we all not taught this this why why, we, why 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 have I not had this before in my life um because it was very very pragmatic very goal orientated very helping ourselves help help well, helping us help ourselves I was just like we need this and so I thought that at that point I became just ignited in trying to think how can I make coaching normal within the profession because it's so normal it's actually really quite last year or last decade in many other professions and how can we also get coaching and non-clinical training into into roles and for people before like not waiting until they need it not until somebody's broken before you need coaching actually this should just be a normal way of communicating to talking to people talking to people and developing people rather than focusing always on the sort of clinical and technical and getting very narrowly focused on on those elements so I did my diploma whilst working and having very small children and then I then I then I made the leap I had handed my notice in had a summer holiday and then said right I'm going to do this um going to create my business wow so that um so there's just a couple of things there I I wanted to so you were aware at the beginning of your career obviously about people having this moment of like oh mm, not mm, this isn't really gonna mm, I'm, and then you know potentially leaving and you spoke I think about you know that um sort of um preventative rather than sort of um reactive medicine mm. <laughs> as far as yeah you know and I do and I I couldn't agree more that that's we're, we do a lot of firefighting with this sort of stuff and that's not that's not the way t- to do it how does it make you feel? Um, and again, you're not you're not responsible for the whole profession, but how how do you feel about the situation we're in now? As far as it does feel like we're in a you know in a ropey place, um, and there's there's always maybe been glimmers of that, but certainly at the moment things are challenging. How does that? How do you feel about that? Um, in this particularly in the role that you're in in your that you're in now. I feel that there's always a better way to do things and there's it doesn't always have to be like this I feel at the moment it's very easy to blame COVID so the things that we train people on and the, the real trigger points and the challenges around time never enough time haven't got enough time to do everything I need to do 
are exactly the same as what we were training people on two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, six years ago. And um, also exactly the same as what I train other professionals on as well. Um, uh, I do do some work with non-vets and non-vet professionals. Um, But I think what we do need to do is to readdress our offering to clients. Being a vet is not about animals, I don't believe. I don't think it's about us as veterinary academics. I think it's all about clients and customer service. We're in a customer-facing environment. The product is the animal medicine, obviously. We always want to do our best, but I think one of the things we do need to address, which I've started to see coming into into some of the social media and some other people are talking about it now, and I've been banging on it for a while, is about the terms like excellence, gold standard. One of the big challenges we have as a profession is that we're taught gold standard. So we're taught the animal comes in and it presents like this with these, this set of signal history. We look at these and we go, these are the differentials. These are then the tests that we do um, and the resources we need in order to do these tests. And from that, we get a diagnosis. Now, the reality is the animal comes in, it hasn't read the textbook. The owner might not have the resources. We might be working in an environment that hasn't got the ability to do the tests that we need to do. We might not have the time to do all of those things. And this is not about not trying to do good medicine and not looking after the animals under your care at all, but it's about having a flexible approach to do the best for that animal that's attached to that owner that's in that environment that you are working with. So there's that part that I think we need to look at the expectations of ourselves and the expectations of what we need to be doing at work today are going to be different to what they were six months ago. So the other challenge we've got is that where teams are needing more people, so say that they were a seven vet practice, but because of stuff and just flux, they are now a vet down and two nurses down. How many of them have actually adapted, truly adapted to now work like a six vet practice with two less nurses? So what systems have changed? What ways of working have changed? Or are people still trying to do what they always did? And therefore, the expectation is high. The reality is lower. And that mismatch is frustration, disappointment, disillusionment, disengagement. And then people go, I can't do it. I'm out. But the answer the answer will be that nothing has changed. And actually, they are working exactly the same way. No, no, you're exactly right. Exactly. And then but then I, I think people I'm just speaking from like how I would feel and I'm sure how a lot of people would feel people will just feel like, well, but they have to keep that up, right? And maybe no one's, and maybe it does actually involve someone coming and going, no, but you don't. Well, I think what is the aim? So let's revisit, what is the aim? So, and I think, I think we don't do enough work on what is the aim of you as a veterinary professional? So whatever role that has, but so if you say take for the vet surgeon, basically to do the best with the patients under your care. That does not mean to to do everything for that. That's not does not mean that you need to do everything you've always have done. And so there's a difference there that we can be more flexible with. So looking at the aims and also um, how can we work more as a team rather than in isolation? 
So how often, so I often talk to people about when people say, but that's my, that's in my case, my, my, no, no, this is, and this is one of the things my old boss used to say to me whenever I used to say, um, oh, sorry about my case, you go, it's not your case, Caroline, it's the practices case, it's the team's case. And actually, if we had more of it, like, how can we work together? But also we do need to, at that point, start to reset these expectations with clients. And that might mean that we can't do certain things that doesn't make you a bad person it doesn't make you a bad vet it's just in the situation we're in at the moment with the resources we've got we're going to have to say no to you we are going to have to turn you away now there is a point and I and and I I haven't I don't know the answer to this so this is the, the problem with one of the things I'm saying but also I, I who my question would be who's responsible is it there are so many more animals now that are actually beyond our ability as a veterinary profession to potentially to treat and to look after but as a six, six vet practice or a three vet practice or a two vet practice you can what is your capacity a closure books why are their, their books still open and i know what is because well what if what if what if well it doesn't matter what if in the future you need to look at your team now you need to look at what you're doing today and also manage expectations. So, yes, we can book you in in a month, in three months, in six months. I can't do it today, but I can't. And so it's about changing the conversation. But what if they phone? What if they what am I going to say to the clients? Well, again, having having some um, clear communication of what you are going to say and what you can say is also important. And none of it is an easy, quick fix. But how many of these conversations are happening in on a day to day basis? And the problem is they're not happening because everybody's busy. People are too busy doing the do rather than actually stepping back and just thinking, like, what what are we doing? How are we doing it? And and um, is it working or is it not working? Um, and and that getting off that hamster wheel is a real challenge and something that we help people with all the time because. It's hard, and changing habits is hard. Yeah. And I, absolutely, but I think we're almost a product of our own success. I think, and and for me, I do. I feel this from a number of levels. Like I think, you know, I've taught on, you know, some training programs, clinical training programs, where we are teaching younger vets to work in and out of our setting, for instance, and we're giving them all the most amazing, potentially skills as far as like placing central lines and all that kind of stuff, but. I've worked in those clinics and I'm like, mm, actually, it's not really like this. It's going to be more like just managing a waiting room full of 20 gazillion people and actually just getting through this work and probably not placing a central line, actually. Um, but then also in working in a referral environment, we then have come under some pressure because actually we've had to start to say no, but people want the gold standard. Referring vets are used to offering the gold standard, which involves referring to us, but there are some days where our kennels are full. And again, it's about shifting goalposts, isn't it? Or I don't know if that's the right term, but shifting something so that we're working in a... Expectations, 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 and communicating those. So actually at the moment, our, the, the expectation that I need to be really clear with you is that X. So like we have in, in with with the doctor, with, with NHS, I'm not saying, <laughs> we know there's faults in, in every system, um, but actually we know that there'll be certain things that you can and can't do. And I know it's more like in private private hospitals of how we, with, with veterinary medicine. Um, but I would also say, are we a product of our own success or are we also the product of our own failings? Because we haven't. So is it, 
like are are people really really truly and honestly having assertive conversations are they actually when do they last say no to uh, a request or a client when do they last really look at their effectiveness and efficiencies or is it because actually that's a bit difficult because that might mean we need to change something and so let's not do that because somebody's uh, but I've, I've got to do this now because um somebody's asked me to do it and actually it might be a bit easier to do so I can't I didn't have time to I didn't have time to that meeting because we had I had to keep had to see clients clients are always going to be there so but we need we do need to start looking at expectations a lot more because then that if you manage your expectations it makes your life so much easier but you can only meet somebody's expectations if first of all you know what those expectations are yes and and you can only start to try and get to those expectations or, or question their expectations if you if you start to manage yeah. those expectations it's a conversation but, uh, that do you know that is only i mean in the number of years i've been on the planet that has only recently become uh, clear to me ebony um from vetstego diversify was on recently and she was actually talking about that exact thing i was so disappointed with something and i was getting really frustrated in this meeting and they weren't doing what i and i wanted to do and she's like and then i thought well, actually but they've got no idea what i want them to do they've got no idea what my and i i absolutely love that you can only meet expectations when you know what they are yeah. you know and, exactly. and that's that's that is actually really quite fundamental to all of this from all sides. What what clients expect of you, what you expect of them, you know, how do we expect or kind of how are we cultivating our client behavior as well? Because actually, and I speak from experience, half the time I have cultivated horrific client behavior because of me. I did that. I created the monster, actually. And I'm quite, I'm quite happy to hold my hands up and say, yeah, I made them mental like that. You know, like, I, you know, that, that's yeah. how I, and I can see that now looking back, but I've done that. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. And obviously there's so many different parts to it. And I'm so glad that, that, that you are in a position to be helping uh, sort out some of the, the issues and um, certainly better suited for the job, certainly than I am. So um, you talked a little bit just about, obviously Caroline Crow coaching obviously now you are working for the VDS um as part of a, a team of people that are in, involved in the kind of training um side of the of the VDS and I think that's one of the really important things that I've come to learn is that the VDS is that who you call when you're having a bad day yeah <laughs> but also importantly there's this other amazing part of it that in, involves kind of the work that you do I don't know whether you can just tell us a little bit about about that yeah so I think it's a, a bit earlier about moving from that reactive to proactive and looking at preventative healthcare for ourselves like in and ways of working for ourselves so we try and reduce the risk of tip-ups and mistakes and slips and um, miscommunications and all of those things I think we sit in a again really privileged position within the profession um, at BDS where we we understand what's happening on the front line. We understand um, what causes errors. We understand what causes mistakes. We understand um, what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis from our, both our claims teams and advice teams, and then also from the training team and the training work that we do. Um, and what we do know is that the majority of reasons why 
why we where we have sort of the stresses in practice and the mistakes and near misses um, are generally not through a lack of clinical knowledge or technical skill, but it's because we're human beings and all the sort of human factors of of how we perform our roles. Um, so communicating with our clients, communicating with our colleagues, um, managing our, recognizing our emotions, managing our emotions, having a conversation, um, recognizing that we are people and that we are not, and there is no such thing as perfect. Um, and so if we're trying to create this perfect outcome, again, are our expectations and reality mis mismatched? Um, so our, our, our mission really at, at the VDS and VDST is very much to be the trusted partner to enable our members to um, look after the patients under their care. And so what we want to do and what we aim to do is to stand by our members um, and to help them help themselves so that they can get on with the bit that they're really passionate about, which is generally the animal part and the medical medicine part. Um, and so to, to train people in the non-clinical elements of their role, so we focus on areas such as leadership, culture, resilience, and I know that resilience people like it or don't like it, but, um, but how to deal with the curveballs, the imperfections, the how to be that flexible, adaptable, look forward to pick ourselves up off, off the floor and not in a blind way where we then sort of slam ourselves back into another wall, but to learn and to grow in a busy, pressurised environment, because that's not going to change. It's always going to be busy. It's always going to be pressurised. There's always going to be clients. There's always going to be animals. Not everything's going to go well. And how do we how do we manage ourselves, our teams, our colleagues, um, sorry, our colleagues and also our clients through that journey? Um, and we also do so we do communication training. Um, we, do, we sort of use a mixture of, of role plays and, um, uh, and we do a lot of online training now. So which is absolutely brilliant. So what I always wanted to do is to to move to a more coaching style of training, because that's how we can get behavioral changes and um, we can help people um, see things differently do things differently feel about things differently and therefore make a, a a real practical change to what it looks like um, uh, um, in in people's roles we, we very much work with people to think about that proactive preventative way of working to to fundamentally when we look at it Whatever role we have, whatever letters we have after our name, we've got one life. We might have different chapters. I always sort of think of our profession, uh, our professional career as a as a book, and we have different chapters. And those chapters might look something like something different, but fundamentally, we've got one life. So we spend so much time at work, and our overall well-being is directly related to our well-being at work because we spend so much time at work. So the workplace is a phenomenal place to make a real difference to fulfillment, engagement, satisfaction, enjoyment of life, let alone of work. So the workplace is somewhere and good work is great for us as, as people. So how can we get more of that? And, you know, not every day you're going to be skipping into work, but actually it should be a good place to be um, and a supportive place to be um, and an engaging place to be and a growth place to be so how can we create that regardless of the actual role that we we do do and we could all influence that yes yeah, absolutely and I think it's that's that's one of the most important things isn't it that we're not 
it's about really everyone has to be brought along in this journey for want of a better word of of change and amazing actually and, and for you to talk about that I really love that you know it's, you're basically at work all the time so let's make it let's make it half decent <laughs> so, yeah, I love that um so through the work that you have done and through the work that you continue to do um whether you like to hear it or not you will have inspired people um and 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 probably had a you know a massive impact on, on people's sort of working lives um as well through the the work you do um so you're an an inspiration i wonder if you can share with us who has inspired you who um i have it down inspired by people um i i actually really love people and i like listening to people um i suppose different people at different phases and at different times I sort of gather my inspiration from. So uh, growing up, I was very much inspired by, by my mum, who is somebody who's always, she's always just been present, always been there, always listens, but she also has a life as well. So she stays active, she's sporty, she's competitive, but she's just, I'm one of four children. She's just, all, she's always there um, in, a, but in a really positive way rather than just waiting for us, if that makes sense. Um, and um, and I'm inspired. I still work outside the veterinary profession as well. And I think that helps draw a lot of inspiration. So talking, working with um, professional athletes, working with other people who are sort of deemed successful, whatever that means, um, in their careers. People who've come through, have had several friends who've, who have, have had to deal with and are, are have, have to ongoingly deal with really life-threatening life-changing um um curveballs that have been have thrown their way and their attitude and their positive attitude a friend of ours um uh has just gone been been in tokyo um at the paralympics she was fully able-bodied until about uh, until 2012 um she i never see her not smiling she has really bad days and so many surgeries and so much going on but she just comes out fighting every single time it just gives me goosebumps just even thinking about her because actually be a bit more like Susie sometimes because you know we can all we can all look at the we can all look at the negative every single day or we can choose to see some of the positive and every day there will be at least one positive that we can all gain from um and that that is something that really inspires me um and um, and like, so I'm very much inspired by whenever I see positivity, whenever I see that can-do attitude. That is something that I'm really massively inspired by. The friend you speak about was she was she uh, in, was she competing at the Tokyo? Um, yes. God. So Susie Hext, yeah. Right. So Susie Hext, she um, was she used to work with us at BMW Equine wow. um, as a vet nurse. Um, she is a Paralympic rider now, and she's also a Paralympic wow. swimmer. So she went swimming. She's amazing. She's so talk, amazing. just to, so. just to talk about the swimming, I can't tell you the number of times that I was just standing in my kitchen weeping, watching the Olympics and the Paralympics. You know everything. Yeah. But watching the Paralympics with my young children, so they're six and seven, and initially, and I'm genuinely, there was there was a bit of kind of a bit of sniggering, a bit of comedy, you know, this is a bit funny, these people that look a bit different and, and you know, swimming a bit different. Some of them don't have any legs, some of them have one arm. And initially, I think as children, they didn't quite know how to process that. Yeah. And I was like, well, hold on, look, look at this. Like, 
there's nothing more inspiring than what you're seeing right now on this television. Because if this person literally with no legs can swim like that, then there's something to aspire to. Like that is just mind blowingly incredible. You know what I mean? Like I just, of all the things to inspire us, yeah, that that's pretty amazing. And then obviously, then obviously Tom Daly winning his gold medal made me weep as well. But I think, you know, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think just oh, yeah, yeah. What an incredible inspire. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I I love that. That's a that's true inspiration. We can we can we can put so many barriers up. We can always give ourselves so many. I can't do this. I can't do that. Um, and we're we're just limiting ourselves all the time. And I think what we see from um, certainly seen from my friends who have had challenges is that actually most things are achievable or at least the journey of getting there so we're not all going to be olympic swimmers we're not all going to be, but actually just try and i think the biggest failing is if you don't try if it's something you want to do and you don't try or you don't allow yourself to try i think that for me is something that is is not great so just try just do it just what's the worst that could happen really um and and what can you gain and so that that's also another sort of principle I sort of live on of um, well, yeah, with um, and try and try and instill in my children as well. Of just, just try it, just see what happens. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? Indeed, who cares? Um, in the best way, in the best way. In the nicest way, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so your career has obviously been very varied. Um, by the sounds of it, you might be going for the Olympics and soon. It's only it's only three years till the next one. <laughs> If only I could, but that's also what's inspired me when I did my runs. That massively inspired me. I, mean, I, I think I would have liked to be an Olympic athlete. I, it's also a bit of reality, isn't it? I'm not going to be. So, um, actually, how can I, how can I still get that feeling, which I would imagine would be something like if you'd been to the Olympics or done something extraordinary, which I think I do think that like, being able to compete in the Olympics is extraordinary. That so actually, well, why can't I still get that? And which then led to me running my 10 marathons in 10 days and that for me as a non-runner was quite extraordinary so just 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 clear so t- so 10 marathons in 10 days yes yes i mean that's quite good isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it was fun it was one of, again one of the best things that was another pivotal moment um i feel i feel you just kind of threw that in there as you know that time that i did those 10 marathons in 10 days and everyone's like what that's free that's like eddie is our standards does he not do that well yeah so, so eddie so that he he was somebody who inspired oh, me wow. at that point i was like well he can do it he doesn't even have a pair of trainers to start off with he's got my trainers i haven't really got anything else and he did it so i was like well he can do it i can do it surely yeah he's incredible yeah and he's incredible isn't he and i i love it. he just and he just does it like he just and i you know i remember watching that documentary about him when he was doing it in was it maybe in Africa? Yeah. And yeah, it's running for Africa. Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know, you know, just so many things about him is just as an individual that are very inspiring. Like I remember in that documentary, he went and got his nails painted. And actually that was really important to him as part of his identity. And he just was like, I'm just going to take a little break. I'm going to get my nails painted. And then I'm going to keep running again. And just, I, I, that always stuck with me. There was something very just poignant about that as well as, and, and just the fact that he just kept going and just, almost quite kind of hum very well actually very humble about the whole thing actually and has obviously raised a huge amount of money so oh well yeah I mean let's um well done for doing that you should <laughs> that's pretty good I think um uh so um I wonder um your 
career has taken lots of uh, you know changes of direction in a great way as we, we always speak about if you were to have the option to to go back and do things differently and maybe not go to vet school if that was an option and do something else would you would you still go to vet school do you think oh yeah yeah because yeah yeah definitely um it's very it's different i qualify yeah 2002 so um nearly 20 years ago oh my god um oh. ah, <laughs> um i it's it's different but I think it's easy to look back with the power of hindsight and say I should or shouldn't have done something or but none of that would have made given me I suppose uh, given me the richness of what I've got given me the experiences that I've got I love the veterinary profession I love being a veterinary surgeon I'm still a veterinary surgeon I'm not practicing clinical clinic work but it is part of my identity it's not who I am I'm I'm Caroline probably my biggest identity is um well it's me actually fundamentally and then it's as a as a mum and a wife and then as a veterinary surgeon and a and a trainer and all those other all the sort of different labels that we put on ourselves but I, I wouldn't have had the experience that I've had the, the the people I've met my friends my best mates my experiences at university I wouldn't give that up for anything that has made that is me that's that's what makes me me um and I think what if I I wouldn't say I'd ever do anything differently, but what I do want to continue to do is to take my learnings from the experiences I've had to shape my future, whatever that looks like. Um, and I think that that's where rather than focus on oh, what I should have done or shouldn't have done, I've actually focused on, well, what do I want for this ne- ne- next chapter? Next chapter. Every decision, I think we're bets we're pretty bad at not looking at decisions in quite a linear way. So if I want to make a change or uh, in my in the practice or in um, in where I'm working or how I'm working, it has to be like for now, forever. No, it doesn't. It just needs to be until you make that next decision. It's okay. And you can, I can still do clinical work. Still up to date with all my CPD. I mean, pretty rubbish probably. And I have a big steep learning curve again, but I can do it. It's a, it's a, it's a possibility. I'm probably not going to, because I love what I do now, but I could do it. So it, it still could. And, the, and the, that's the one thing we're all in control of at all times is the fact that if you wanted to leave your job today, you could leave your job today. And if I wanted to leave mine, then, you know, and and and, and if I want to, you know, then go back to something, I can do that. And it's all it's all fine. And and it all, you know, for me, always goes back to, the, you know, throughout everything we've talked about today, you know, nothing changes if nothing changes. And actually you know, if, if two vets leave the practice, then you probably have to change things because it's not going to be the same. And it's the same with everything, actually, you know, and we're in, in many ways, we, we do have control over that and, and can make, you know, these decisions. So if there was one piece of advice that you could give people listening from your, and this is hard, it's a hard question, but I think if there was one piece of advice that you could give people um, uh, listening, what would that piece of advice be? Um... I think my piece of advice, dare to dream. So relinquish your can'ts, like the I can'ts that hold you back. Uh, take yourself out of your comfort zone at times. Think about what you would like to be, what you want to do, what you want to have, and then find the people and the ways and the resources in order to make it happen. Remember, we've got one life. So ask yourself, how do you want to live it and choose positivity? And I love that you've, you've said that a couple of times about, and, and we all fundamentally know this, but I think the reminder is so important that we do have one life and we are. And I think what I, I loved about, you know, 
the kind of what you how you highlighted the fact that work is a really important part of that and i think regardless of how challenging it has been just trying to op, you know optimize that too because that is going to contribute as we all know very much to our, our our happiness but we do you know fundamentally through the people that we talk to we're, we all feel lucky to be part of this amazing profession particularly because of the people actually that we have met i think that would be a common theme and i think one of the things you know and 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 and, and, and you know again through the work that you do is that there definitely are things that we can do to improve how we feel and work and behave and interact on a daily basis so there's definitely always hope um, and and things that we can change in a positive in a positive way. Well, listen, thanks. Uh, really, honestly, thank you so much for chatting to us today. It's been a real pleasure, and um, yeah, so many things that I love from w- what you've said through that kind of one life, but also just dropping in the fact that you ran ten marathons in ten days. So <laughs> I just I just love that what we find out about people. So thank you, honestly, thank you so much for chatting today. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so in previous episodes, we've had a chat about um, feeling pancreatitis, uh, particularly focusing on um, already the the management of acute pancreatitis. And we're just going to round off with a a short discussion today about chronic pancreatitis. Um, And this is a a condition that I think we probably are going to be maybe even seeing a bit more and treating a bit more um, than maybe some of the acute uh, pancreatitis cases. And what's interesting about chronic pancreatitis, particularly in the cat, is that it often will crop up with other problems. So we will often be treating other comorbidities and and you're having to make decisions about sometimes what things are priorities. And I would say for me, with any cases of pancreatitis, actually one of the main things is I would be prioritising treating other things because it may be that the pancreatitis is not necessarily secondary, but but not being helped by by other conditions. So I, I certainly would always prioritise treating any comorbidities that you have um, that you're able to 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 manage. I think the thing about chronic pancreatitis also is that you setting the owner's expectations. You know, it may it may be a condition that will not go away, and by definition, it, it it's something that is ongoing. And it may have good days and it may have bad days and it may have flare-ups. And and for me, it's about managing mostly, um, uh, not not just the underlying inflammation, but the associated clinical signs, which usually are, um, you know, associated with pain, uh, particularly. So having uh, options for home analgesia, such as uh, transmucosal buprenorphine, for using buprenorphine transmucosally, as we know we can do in cats, other analgesic options would would include things maybe like gabapentin, tramadol, remember meropitant, we think probably has some sort of vis- visceral analgesic effect. Um, for me, transmucosal buprenorphine is probably one of the more useful things. I'm, I'm not a particular fan of using tramadol in, in cats uh, and potentially gabapentin. There is also this uh, discussion about the supplementation of pancreatic enzymes in cases of of pancreatitis. These pancreatic enzymes would usually be reserved for cases of exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. But there's some evidence in the human field to suggest that maybe pancreatic enzyme supplementation can be beneficial in some ways, including 
actually having a, a, a pain relieving effect. People kind of think along the lines of, you know, you're if you've got pancreatitis, giving the enzymes, you're you're allowing the pancreas to have to work less hard. I think, to be honest, we don't know that that's true in cats. I wouldn't be routinely giving them pancreatic enzyme supplementation, but we we need to be aware that there's the possibility of exocrine pancreatic insufficiency potentially developing in some of these cases. So, it, 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 you know, but that would be something that we would assess for separately. And I, I don't think routinely giving pancreatic enzyme supplementation in, in cats, we, I don't think we know that that's, that's necessarily beneficial. The nutritional management of these um, cases is, is not the same as in dogs. So actually changing diet just for pancreatitis is rarely indicated. We, we don't have to fat restrict them as we, we do in dogs. You want them to be on a balanced, appropriate diet. And so if it's just pancreatitis you're battling, probably making a diet change is not necessarily that necessary. Uh, usually the diets are kind of focused on comorbidities. So many of these cats we touched on may have this triaditis that we talk about. So they may have pancreatitis, but they can also have problems uh, like a chronic enteropathy and, and uh, inflammation within the, the liver. So it would be more appropriate in those cases to actually give them a hydrolyzed diet um, for their GI disease, for instance. So I would be thinking about comorbidities when it comes to diet. Again, apart from managing pain, nausea and, and you know, meropitin, ondansetron, really useful drugs. I sometimes actually give my pancreatitis patients, give the owners a, a supply of meropitin that they can use at home uh, themselves you know so if, if we feel like we're having a little bit of a flare-up on one day or or things are not as good appetite wise we can use these things without necessarily always coming back to see you um and some cases may require appetite stimulation with things like mirtazapine and capromorelin the the wonder drug that we spoke about as well antibiotics are rarely indicated um in chronic pancreatitis cases unless there is a complication or comorbidity that requires an antibiotic i would always be um i would always be testing folate and cobalamin in these cases not just uh because it's never a bad idea actually but because of the the sort of association with the gi tract and the and the uh potential for chronic enteropathy and and certainly that's something that you would want to be supplementing uh, if that was deficient and then it comes down to, you know, again, that's just a whole lot of sort of symptomatic um, therapy. It then comes down to the question, we've got a chronic inflammatory condition. Do we consider using um, drugs to deal with inflammation or even Im immune modulate? Uh, and the, the question is actually many of these patients will um, benefit um, from, from that. So as far as uh, chronic pancreatitis cases, then certainly um, I would consider steroids in these cases. Um, and the regime that I would normally use, again, these are cases that, that I think have chronic pancreatitis that we've dealt with 
any other problems, I would typically give them two milligrams per kilogram of prednisolone every 12 hours for five days and then reduce that to one milligram per kilogram every 12 hours for six weeks um, uh, with a with a uh, then a, a just a decreasing dosing schedule. The other immunomodulatory drug that I would consider would be cyclosporin, but I must admit I normally start with steroids in these cases and particularly in cats who seem to tolerate steroids very well, I'm, I'm comfortable using that. Again, you know, we want to be monitoring this. We, we want to be basing, is this working? I'm giving steroids, are they making a difference? I want to be basing that on clinical signs, but that's where FPLI is useful. You can use, uh, hopefully reducing FPLI values as a, an indication that, um, uh, you know, the, that, that your treatment is working and in cats treated with pred uh, prednisolone or cyclosporin um when there's not improvement in clinical signs and and fpli has not decreased then i, I would discontinue that therapy I, I wouldn't continue in the face of persistent clinical signs or or you know persistent very high increases in fpl Surgery is very rarely indicated in these cases as far as management, but certainly <clears throat> surgery could be part of the diagnostic process. And and again, often in cats, actually, you are considering biopsying not just the pancreas, but also the gastrointestinal tract and the liver because of that potential for there to be more than one area inflamed. And so I, I certainly... In chronic cases, um, the only way you're going to get a definitive diagnosis is by doing by doing a biopsy. Just to just to finish off, just to mention, we talked about the fact that that um, again, pancreatic enzyme supplementation is not necessarily needed, but I would also be keeping in mind that these cats can go on to develop exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, and that. It's just something else that may need to be kind of considered and, and monitored, particularly if they start to progressively lose weight or, or develop diarrhea. Uh, I would be keeping that uh, on the radar. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our discussion about pancreatitis. I hope that was helpful. Um, if you've not listened to previous episodes, then this maybe seems a little out of context, but uh, we have talked through uh, other elements of the diagnostic process uh, and we'll be moving on to a new clinical topic in our next episode, which I've not actually fully decided on. So if anyone's listening and, and would like to suggest a clinical topic um, that we can chat about on the podcast, then please do uh, drop me an email. I'm always happy to chat about things that are helpful. So do do let me know. Big thank you again to Caroline for chatting today and, and a massive thank you again to the VDS for their support of this podcast. I also, as always, want to say a massive thank you to you for listening. Your support is truly appreciated. It, it, you will never understand how much it means to us, to me, um, that you tune in and listen. So th big thank you. To find out more about VDS and what they're doing, head over to the links in the show notes and do head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com to learn more uh, about what VTX are all about. And we will see you next week.